Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to me, turn with me to 1 John in chapter 3. 1 John in chapter 3. Continuing on in our study of 1 John this morning. As many of you know, I was actually only planning on preaching for six weeks, and it's going to be a couple more. We're going to finish through chapter 3, and so that'll be a, a, hopefully a blessing for all of us. Hopefully a blessing for you. It's definitely been a blessing for me in this study. It's been a true joy to open up God's word with you and to allow the Lord to speak to us through his word. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18, verses 11 through 18 of 1 John chapter 3. And so I invite you then to hear the word of God starting in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. You'll have to bear with me. It's a little different not having a mic in front of me. It's like I can see everyone now, and that's a, it's a little different, but it's a, it's a blessing. So, friends, let us hear from our living God, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another we should not be like Cain, who was the, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is an essential aspect of the Christian life. When a person moves from being a child of Satan to being a child of God, through the new birth and the efficacious work of Christ, they move not only families from the child of Satan to the child of God, but are truly transformed in a variety of areas. Their whole lives become transformed. While this may take time and Christians will battle sin to the very end, they will see a slow and steady progression of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in their lives. One of the end results, love. The scriptures in the Bible reveals to mankind in written word the very nature and character of God. We look to the scriptures as God's authority because it's his word and in it he reveals himself to us. While our limited capabilities can only grasp at certain parts, we see many things from the scriptures that affirm who God is. He is creative. He is omnipotent or all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is merciful. He is just. He is loving. 
Some of these attributes are what we call communicable, meaning that we share in those as man, as his created beings. Others are incommunicable, or that means that they are not shared. There are certain things about God that we cannot have and we never will. Even in those communicable attributes, things like love and justice, kindness, a desire for righteousness, they're obviously limited. Never to the full extent of the creator, but definitely a desire there. There's definitely a spark of that. That's why we see naturally a desire for love. We want to love fellow man. We want to love our children. We want to marry. Even the unbeliever wants to marry and be have love because it's a communicable attribute of God and the created man. We see it especially, though, as believers in a, in, a, in a specific way, in a special way, because as a saved man or a saved woman, it's on display in our Savior in a way that no unbeliever can ever understand, no unbeliever can ever truly comprehend, and it totally transforms how we view and how we understand love. We have seen throughout our study here at 1 John that love is of great importance in the life of the believer and it permeates literally all aspects of the Christian life in such a way that it literally impacts everyday walk of the believer. How we love characterizes us. Richard Baxter, a Puritan, wrote this, Love is the commander of the soul. And therefore God knows that if he has our hearts, he has all. For all the rest are at his command. For it is, as it were, the nature of the will, which is the commanding faculty, and its objective is the ultimate end, which is the commanding object. Love sets the mind on thinking, the tongue on speaking, the hands on working, the feet on going, and every faculty obeys its commands. Love truly is a, a special thing. The great commandments are about love. How does Jesus summarize all of the commands? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so John here starts our text and he does so through what he's been doing. He does these contrasting statements showing that the importance of love and the true character of the believer are one and the same. A believer is one who loves. Specifically, he talks about loving his brother versus the unbeliever, the one who hates his brother. He draws us again into this beautiful contrast where he expounds on the reality of what it means to be a believer versus an unbeliever. Remember, First John, he's been combating a bunch of false teaching that's been going on. You have all of these people that have left the church, these cessationists that have separated themselves from the church, pursuing all kinds of false teaching. We believe it to be something of a form of Gnosticism. They've taught that they have a higher understanding, a deeper knowledge, a, a more personal experience or the docetists who literally blaspheme the Lord and saying that Jesus Christ was not truly man. He was simply a spirit or a phantasm or a ghost. 
It's like a haunted house. It's insanity to say that. And so he's combating all of these things, and the believers that he's writing to have experienced great loss as men and women that they've walked alongside and that they thought were solid with them have now left. And they say, what am I missing? What am I doing? What's wrong? And John clears it all up in this letter. And the way he does that is he continues to give these contrasting statements where he says, here's what a believer is. Align with that. Here's what a believer is not. Avoid it. So far, he's talked about a believer walking in the light, obeying commands, confessing sin, loving God and not the world. And as we saw last week, or last couple of weeks, practicing righteousness. This is what characterizes a believer, and he continues that today and says, a believer loves his brother. And so let us turn our attention for our text today, but before we do so, I want to lay before you three points that will help us in our navigation of our text. First, the charge to love in verse 11. The charge to love. Second, the contrast of love in verses 12 through 15. And finally, in verses 16 through 18, the confirmation of love. The confirmation of love. And with that, let us look at our verse today and our first point, the charge to love. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John does what he has done from the very first line of this letter. He is drawing the reader back to what is truth, back to what is reality. As they looked out on this world of change because so many people were leaving and there was this mass sort of exodus from the church and not a good exodus like the Israelites leaving Egypt, but a, a bad one following false doctrines and false teachings. And what does he do throughout the letter? He calls them back to what he knows, calls them back to what they've been taught, calls them back to what they have heard previously. That's what he does from the very beginning. He starts in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. And he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, but which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John calls on them to know and believe the truth, that which is real, that which accords with reality, that which they know to be true. Because John himself says, I know him. I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. I laid my head upon his chest. He was real. There's no phantasm. There's no ghost. But he was real. He is real. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 7, he also said, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning, that which is accorded with everything you have known about the risen Christ. That which has been true from the very moment that you heard the gospel, that you were taught all of the, the truths and the doctrines of the faith, this is what he's pointing back to. It's been drawing on the knowledge of the believers in the church to inform their current walk. This is why it's so important for us as believers. We, I never want to be the guy to give you new things, per se. 
I'm not going to be the guy that's going to come out and give you some new topic and say, well, if you read it just so-and-so, you will get X, Y, and Z from it. No, I want to read God's word because this is the truth. Of, this is the truth. This is what we want to live by. It's God's word. And so he says, look to what you know to be true. Look to what you have followed this whole time. And now notice what he says here. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. And what is that message? That we should love one another. This is not just an informational thing. This is a call upon the lives of the believers. This is a call upon the hearers of the message. He says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. We've seen this before, back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, the reality is, is that John has already talked about this. He's just expounding upon this reality for you and giving the command again, love your brother. First John chapter 3 and verse 10, he did it earlier, just a line before what we read today. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we can take the contrast of that. The one who loves his brother is in the light, and he is a child of God. John is simply reminding the believers of truth here, that they are called to love one another. It's the same thing that's been since John's gospel previously. This is the same thing that they've heard and they've known. I'm going to turn back there real quick. For, uh, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus in this new commandment says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John isn't pulling something new in the sense of, pulling something he desires to see happen. He's only pulling on what Christ has already told him. He's pulling out the realities of what he has written before because this was Christ's words to the people. How will people know who you are? By your love for one another. And notice what he does here. He doesn't say, just love your neighbor. He doesn't just say, care for your neighbor. No, he gives a specific command. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And so you ask the question here is, so I'm supposed to love as Christ loved? But how? How can I love as Christ loved? That's a correct act, a question to ask ourselves. We look at the perfect almighty God. We looked at the, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, and we say, how can I love as he loved? It seems that we'd be unable, unable to do so. We have no ability for that, and that is true. We cannot love completely as Christ loved. 
But, but, that is, a, that is something that we need to understand. There's a but here. But, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see in Romans 5, 5, we can love one another sacrificially as Christ loved us. Will it ever be perfect? No. I wish it could, but it won't. But, th- we will continue to grow in our deeper love. That spirit penetrating and rooting out all of the, the wickedness and the filth Growing our love for one another. Striving, striving to love as Christ loved us. We'll see our love deepen and grow and strengthen by God's love being poured into us through his spirit. And so the charge has been given. You and I are reminded here that as the original hearers of this letter, to love one another. John goes on to expound upon that and creates a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. We know what a believer is to do. A believer is to love one another. To love one another. Now let's turn to our next point, the contrast of love. Verses 12 through 15. Hear these words again. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We should not be like Cain. John starts this contrast by stating what a believer is not to be like. And he references a story that all these people would have probably heard before. We definitely know it, right? As believers, even the Gentiles probably would have heard this storyline. He speaks specifically about the children, Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve, the ones who were the first to disobey God's order, his command. And he creates a separation there. We'll read that story in just a second, but notice what he says about who Cain is. He says, Cain is the one who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We see the children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And we see the storyline that he's referencing here. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his life's harvest flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must over, rule it over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And so we see this is the storyline that John is referencing here. Cain, the brother of Abel, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, was a murderer. He was of the evil one and a murderer. Notice what Cain does and what John's focus is here. He's talking about Cain murdering his brother. He doesn't talk about anything that Cain did specifically as far as his offerings before God, where his heart was in that sense, but he says Cain murdered his brother. Murder is truly the ultimate act of hate. It's truly the ultimate act of hate. Numbers 35, I'm just going to turn back there briefly. You don't have to join me. Numbers 35, verses 20 and 21, we read, And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. This is from the law. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. We see that this is the reality. And then Jesus himself expands upon that in Matthew chapter 5. We see that again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, murder is the ultimate act of hatred. Murder also revealed, though, truly where Cain was, where he resided. Notice he says he's of the evil one. He's of his father, Satan. As John 8, 44, Jesus talks about that. He says, you are of your father, Satan, the devil. As we will see as we continue in this letter, John is going to expound upon this. I don't want us, as I'm sure John didn't want his original audience to do, is to push this off. It's easy for me and for you, I'm sure, though I don't know everyone's history, to say, I've never murdered anyone. So I don't have to worry about that. I've never killed anyone. I'm good. I'm clean. I don't have to worry about this. That's a Cain problem. That's not a me problem. But that's not the case. And Jesus expounds upon that with that message from Matthew chapter 5. And we want to hold that. And we're going to just... Pause right there for a second. Just hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. But first, let's continue. And why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Here we have a question posed. John laying out the question so that we can answer. Or so that he can answer it for us. It's kind of great, isn't it? Because he gives us this rhetorical question. He asks the question, but he doesn't need your answer. He has his own. Because it's clear from the text. He says... Why did he murder him? What was the reason behind it? It's not neutral. No sense in which it just happened. There's no sense in which it was just a 
well, things happen, people get murdered, and we move on. No, there was a reason, because his deeds were evil. Remember earlier in the text, John says, Cain was of the evil one, and here he says his deeds were evil. Well, if he's of the evil one, then of course his deeds would be evil, would they not? Cain's deeds simply showed where he lied. John doesn't even have to really say he's of the evil one because his actions already prove it. They already show where he lies, where he stands. Remember, there's only two places you can be. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. You have one or the other. There's only two families in this world and you're in one of those two. Cain showed where he was. But notice what he says about Abel. He says his brothers were righteous. We saw earlier that God is righteous, did we not? We saw that back in 1 John chapter 3. And uh, Sorry, I'm just looking for that passage real quick. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Talking about God himself. And so if Abel's acts or deeds were righteous, then of course he's of his father, the God, who is righteous. Once again, John is creating this separation. He's drawing out between the two, and he's saying, righteousness is equated with God. Evil is equated with Satan. There's only two options, either righteousness or evil, and you're on one or the other side. But notice what he says next. Do not be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. Should be no surprise, believer. Notice that he calls upon the hearer here. He calls him a brother. So he's talking about talking specifically specifically to believers. He says, Should be no surprise, brother, believer, that the world hates you. Now turn back to John chapter 15 and verse 18. We've heard this before. This is the same thing that was written in John's gospel. John chapter 15 and verse 18. And reading through 16.3, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had, done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are offering sacrifice or service to God. 
and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. Friends, Jesus himself here told us what would come. He tells the believer what will be true. John is not writing a new message in the sense of something that isn't real or something that they should surprising to them. I know you signed on with Christ. By the way, you're going to have a lot of hatred. I know that you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you may be persecuted for this. No, this was a clear message that was sent from Jesus himself and would have been taught to the believers. They probably saw it in John himself as he probably suffered. We know he was exiled. We know that he was beaten and attacked numerous times. And so we know that John had struggles. We know that he was persecuted. They looked upon John and they saw the perfect example. They looked upon, many of them probably had heard of Paul if they had not met Paul personally. And so they knew the struggles. Righteousness and evil do not cooperate. They are truly incompatible. They are truly antithetical to each other. They truly go one against the other. This has been John's message throughout the text. There are two sides, and you can't be on both. You can't be in both camps, as it were. You can't be a double agent. You can't be a spy for both sides. It's either one or the other. And John continues to describe more about the believer and continues to build that separation. He says, we know that we have passed out of life or out of death and into life. He's talking back about, once again, something he's written in his own gospel. John chapter 5 and verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus talking to the believers. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We are reminded here that the believer is indeed one that has received eternal life, that he has passed out of death and into life. Remember the point of this letter. John says it back, or John says it at the end almost. First John chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. So John, by saying this, we know that we have passed out of death and into life, is saying, we know that we have come out of being the children of Satan and into the children of God, that we've passed out of the spiritual death and into spiritual life, that we've been given spiritual eternal life, which will come in physical life as well. And what does he say is the confirmation? It says, because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. We'll see this in some period. I don't know when we'll get back into 1 John chapter 4. But 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We love the brothers. This is the confirmation of your belief. This is how we know that we are Christians. And so by being a believer, it necessarily relates to the love of brothers. They cannot be separated. You can't 
say you believe in the Lord God and yet hate your brother, as we saw previously. As he says back in 1 John in chapter 2 and 3, he says, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I hate my brother, but I'm still a believer in the Lord Jesus. No, they come together. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love for the family of God is an inward and an outward sign of the work of God in your life. Friends, this is why it's so essential that we are members of a local church. It's so essential that we are members gathering in the local body of believers. How do we show love for the brothers if we are not gathered in the church? We can show love in a variety of ways, sure, but this is what God has called us to do, to show love for the brothers, to show love for the fellow believers. And we must be in a local church to do that well. Notice the contrast that he gives us, though. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love his brother, whoever does not truly have love, is a child of Satan and not really a brother in the sense of a family of God. He abides in death. I'm going to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Talking about this change that we see. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we move out of the sins and move out of this being dead in our trespasses and sins into being members of the family of God. And so we see that as a believer, there is a necessary change that comes. Where you once lied, you no longer are. Where you once were dead, you were now alive. Where you once followed your sins and trespasses, the sins and following the course of this world, you now follow in righteousness. You follow in love. And so, once again, this contrast is this expanding and growing. We see more and more as John is pulling apart. He's creating the separation. He's putting the dividing line between them. Those who do not love abide in death. And those who love abide in life. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
we read earlier, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, where Jesus expounds upon that. There's no new statement for you, believer. John is just relaying what Christ already taught. To hate is to murder with your heart. And to murder is to be like Cain. I don't know if you guys ever remember back in math. Some of you are like me. You really enjoyed math. Some of you hated it, I'm sure. Um, but in math, you would have these sayings, right? You say A equals B, B equals C. So A equals C. You can make the connection, right? If, they're, if one thing is the same as the next and this is the same as the following one, then they're all equal. They're all the same. Well, John, in a sense, does that here. He says, to hate is to murder in your heart. And murder is like Cain, because Cain was a murderer. And so to hate is to be like Cain. To, to murder in your heart is to be like Cain. And so I said earlier, we would relate this back, right? We want to say that it's not me. It's so easy for us to separate ourselves from Cain and to be like at least as long as I'm not like Cain. As long as I don't raise up against my brother and murder him, then I'm fine. You might even say to yourself, boy, I'm even better than David. Look at that guy. He had lust, and he had somebody kill Uriah for him? At least I'm not like that. No, friends. We see that to hate is to murder. Friends, let this be an encouragement once again that this applies to you just as much, as much as it does to me and as much as it did to the hearers of this word originally. Friends, let this be an encouragement for us to love one another well. It's not to say that there won't be times of strife. There won't be times of challenge and struggle. But let us be quick to address those times. Let us pursue peace and love. Because that's what we are called to do. Because the reality is, as we look at the next section here, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No murderer, no one who commits the act of murder physically or inwardly through hatred, has eternal life abiding in him. Remember we talked about that word abide previously. It's to remain steadfast. To be settled, to have your roots planted of sorts. If someone continues in hatred, they show that they have not received eternal life. That salvation is not within them. Because the one who receives eternal life, the one who truly receives salvation, will love their brothers. It feels like it's almost too straightforward, does it? Love your brothers is an outward and inward sign of the saving work of Christ upon your life. To hate your brother is to say that you don't know him at all. And this transitions so well into our final point. We have seen thus far the charge to love, the contrast of love. Now let us turn our attention to the confirmation of love. Verses 16 through 18. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, 
we know love, that he laid down his life for us. John chapter 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Last week we talked about sin. And there was this description of a believer as one who practices righteousness. We read that just earlier because he is righteous. Because God is righteous. Here we see something similar. How do we know love? Because our God displayed it in the ultimate act of love, in the death of the Son, the Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. We were talking in the very beginning about God's character being on display in the Word. God's very nature being revealed in His Word. And we see that. We see that love in a, in a special way, in a beautiful and truly superior way in the cross. For Jesus died for sin. Like righteousness, we know love because God showed himself to be loving. He displayed it through Christ. We know that God's also loved through eternity past, right? We've seen that. We've, if you read through your Old Testament, is I know a lot of people want to detach the Old Testament from the New Testament and say, well, we're New Testament guys. We don't, we don't worry so much about the Old Testament. But boy... One, the Lord never intended that for us. And two, how the Lord displays himself in such radiant glory in the Old Testament. Speaking of the Israelites earlier, right? We talked, I just mentioned briefly, the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. What a perfect display of God's love for his people. Magnifying his power and his glory upon the people that he would allow all of these plagues to take over Egypt but not harm the Israelites. He would allow the Israelites to escape, and he would care for them, even, their, even in their disobedience, through the wilderness to bring them to the promised land. God truly is a God of love. But we see such a special way as believers. When the Son came to the earth, when Jesus came to the earth, and he dwelt amongst men, when he lived his life and he died the death that we deserve, and is God's love on display, is God's love magnified. Friends, do you not see the reality is, is that should have been you, that should be you. Each and every one of us in reality should be taken to a cross right now, put upon the cross and the wrath of God poured upon us. That's what we deserve. That's what we have earned for ourselves by our sin. However, as we know from John chapter 3, right, the most famous passage of all time probably, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus died in our place for our sin. And in so doing, God's love was on display for his people. However, in seeing the love of God, his people are then given a task. We are given something we are to do. Look at the end of that sentence. He doesn't stop there. He gives you something. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Brothers and sisters, because the Savior died as an ultimate act of love, we are called to lay down our lives for our brothers. This means, indeed, and I don't want this to be 
misconstrued or misheard, you must be willing to sacrifice yourself for the brothers, should it be necessary. This may mean that one day you would be called upon to give up your life for your brothers. So many people want to contextualize that and they want to do something with it and say, well, he doesn't really mean that you might die for your brothers. He doesn't really want you to die for your brothers. No, he doesn't caveat. He says there may come a time where you might do that. You may not. You may not. You may live to a ripe old age and die peacefully. But you may be called upon to die for your brother. We may never be in that position, but the word doesn't stop there. He doesn't say that you can't die for your brothers. But look at what he says next, because once again, it's like John throughout is like looking for every argument that could be brought against it. And he says, hold on, let me explain a little further. Let me give you just a little more. As we saw earlier, he did that and he does it again here. Because you say, well, I live in the United States. We don't get persecuted much. We live a pretty comfortable life. The risk of me having to die for my brothers is pretty limited. And that's true. We live a very comfortable life. We're very fortunate. The Lord has been very kind for each and every one of us to be able to gather here freely. To be able to have this nice roof over our heads and have air conditioning and all the things. We know that there's many out there that are currently unable to gather. Both within the United States because of illness or things like that, but really I'm talking about persecuted churches in foreign countries where Christians are literally killed daily. Talk about people giving their lives to save their brothers. But lest we start to pull ourselves back from the storyline and we say, well, I'll never have to lay down my life for my brothers. Notice what he says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Here we are talking about a person with material wealth. The one with the world's goods. He's not talking about someone who owns the world. He's not talking about someone who is extravagantly wealthy. Though each and every one of us are in comparison to poverty within our world. So many people think, well man, I don't make a lot and in our culture, maybe we don't, but the reality is, is we are far more wealthy than most of the world. And he sees his brother in need. He sees another one who is lacking in some area, struggling to meet the needs of life, yet closes his heart against him. It's this person, this person of wealth, looks upon the brother lacking, and he shows no care or pity for him. How does the love of God, or God's love, abide in him? The question is laid before you. The believer should have a natural propensity to care for one another. Colin Cruz in his commentary says this, In the light of Christ's self-giving love for them, the author says they ought not to close their hearts toward fellow believers in material need. Once again, John just rings it home for you. God in his word just makes sure that it penetrates it deep. You look upon the world and you say, the world I live in, there's no chance of me needing to die. And he says, well, there is chance. Because, he says, you might need to die to your own desire. 
You might need to die to your own wealth and give to your brother who is in need. And the reason Christ gave himself freely for the believer. And so the natural flow should be that you would do so too. Calvin says of this section, John Calvin, he speaks now of the common duties of love which flow from the highest spring. He seems to reason from the greater to the less, from Christ to us. For he refuses to alleviate his brother's need for his own abundance while his life is safe and secure, will far less expose his life for him. Therefore, he denies that there is love in us if we defraud our neighbors of help. John Calvin is essentially saying, in this very line, the Lord is clear to us. Speaking from the greatest to the less, Christ to us, that if we live these lives that are just safe and secure and we deny our brother, we just show that there's no real love in us. And our text closes with a contrast to help us just nail that home. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Little children, it's that familiar and beautiful name for the believer. We've seen it throughout the text. We saw it just last week, I believe. And we see, he says, little children... Or sorry, two weeks ago. Or no, we did see it last week. Yep, verse 7. Little children. That familiar love of characterizing who they are and their status. Let us not love in word or talk. Now this is not to say that we should not have verbal affirmation of our love. So many people would say, well, I guess I just don't need to say anything. But that's not what he's saying here. It's not saying that we can't tell one another that we love one another. In fact, we should tell one another that we love one another. We should give that verbal affirmation. However, this cannot be all it is. He says, but in deed and in truth. But in deed and in truth. Our love must go beyond verbal affirmation to our actions. This is the deeds. Our actions. And in truth, we must love truly by showing that what we affirm is how we actually feel and act, what is true of us. We see this in regards to faith. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Once again, it's this reality of saying, we can't have just verbal affirmation. There has to be actions that back it. Or else it shows a sign that there's no true transformation. James chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16 is a perfect example of this. James just nails it home again. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is it? What good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Friends, we are called not to this love in word, not to just tell one another that we love one another, but to do so in deed and in truth, in our actions, 
that reveal the true character and the true nature of our love. And so we come to the end of our text. We've seen the charge to love, the contrast of love, the confirmation of love. Friends, the word is clear for us. There's two, two families, as I mentioned before. Hatred, which characterizes those of the world, those of the evil one. It's exemplified or personified in Cain. And those who are of the evil one are characterized by their actions of murder and show they are indeed spiritually dead. However, we see the believer, the one who is characterized by their love. And we see that especially in Christ, the one who personifies that. In him we see the self-sacrificial love in the eternal life then that is present. If you do not love your brother, but murder with anger in your heart, then you show where you stand before God truly. Eternal life does not abide in you, and therefore you can be sure that you are as of Cain, the evil one. You are of the evil one. These are seemingly harsh words to say, but they need to be said for the sake of your soul. So if, I, if you identify with this, if you say, man, I do have hatred, then repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for sin. Through him alone can you come to have eternal life and be counted amongst the believers, counted amongst the brethren. Through him alone will you receive the spirit that will work within your heart to love your brother. Once again, the brother is characterized by love for his brethren. The believer loves his brother. It's not a perfect love by any means. We'll fail many times as we always do. Lord knows that I have failed numerous times and will continue to do so. But the genuine desire, the genuine push for the believer is to love their brother. And how do we do this? Well, we've talked about this before and a couple of times, and so I'm not going to give you something new. I'm just going to remind you and refresh your minds on what we've talked about previously. This isn't being lazy. I just thought it was that good the first time. Things that we can do to better love our brother. Love one another by looking outwardly. Philippians chapter 2, verses Three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <coughs> Friends, we get caught up far too easily in ourselves. We do this in a variety of ways. We do it not only in our desires for our own pleasure, for our own comforts, all those things, but we even do it sometimes in our own sorrows and woes. We find ourselves so frequently just so caught up with everything that's going on with us, we fail to look outwardly. Caught up in our own world and we fail to look up. We see this so much of our world today. That's the kind of the bane of like phones, is it not? Is that people are constantly looking down in a, in a real physical way. And by doing so, what they're saying is, 
I'm not looking outward. I'm not looking to others. I'm so caught up in myself. I'm so caught up in me and my needs and my desires. I have to be careful now. There's mics there. Me and myself and my desires. As struggles surround us and overtake us, we find ourselves looking inwardly instead of externally. Friends, let us stop looking at ourselves, see one another and each other's needs, and ask the question, how do we meet them? John already gave us this task here in the Word, right? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Friends, if we see each other's needs, then we can help meet those, but that's only if we look outwardly, if we look out. Number two, love one another by speaking in love. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Express your gratitude and your love towards one another. Not superficially. That's exactly what John was saying here. Not superficially where it's all this talk. But actually addressing realities of the person. Real giftings that the Lord has placed on the believer. Showing that you pay attention. That you see and you know this is looking upon the believer and saying, a fellow believer and saying, my brother or sister, you are so kind in your heart with hospitality. Or brother or sister, your singing truly is beautiful and, and truly is a joy to hear as we glorify God together. It's identifying transformations or changes. Brother, I've noticed that your speech has gotten better. Where you once used to curse, you no longer do. Love one another by speaking in love, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another. Love one another by listening. James chapter 1 and verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let us be slow to speak and quick to hear. Ask questions of one another. Seek not to speak solely about yourself, but to hear others. This goes in line with the first one, looking outwardly. Part of looking outwardly is needing to hear people. Seek to know their lives, to know their praises and their supplications, their desires and their joys, the struggles and the pains and the glories and the, the, the true happiness. But all we can do is to listen to one another. Number four, love one another by sharing your heart. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Walk alongside one another. Be willing to bear the burdens of one another. Hurt with them. Rejoice with them. Allow your heart to be open. Friends, this means vulnerability. This means being truthful with one another. It means that we need to open up. Our world has become so caught up with individuality, so caught up with not sharing our personal challenges or struggles. We're so afraid of man that we hold everything in and we think that that's being strong or that's being better. We need to love one another by sharing our hearts, being willing to open up and bear one another's burdens. Number five, and there's only... I think I did this last time too. There's two more. So five and six. 
Love one another by giving freely. The end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love co- covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, love one another by giving freely. Give of your time. Give of your talents. Give of your treasures. Give of the gifts that God has given to you. And do so freely. We all must acknowledge that none of this is of us. Our jobs, the money that we receive for our work, our skill sets, our, our, our knowledge, our time, that's all by God's grace. That's all God's giving to us. Friends, the Lord can take your life right now and your time is up. It's only by his mercy. The Lord could, as we've seen, take away talents. We've seen numerous times people who have been famous athletes or famous uh, actors or things like that and have been known for their abilities and they get in an accident and they lose it all. Your treasures truly are a gift of God to be used by God freely. And number six, love one another by showing grace. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Step out into that vulnerable place of true loving relationships, being open with one another, forgiving one another when hurt, and being willing to set aside hurts. It's one of the most difficult things that we'll have to do in our Christian walk to put ourselves aside and to love one another and to show one another the grace that we've been given. We've been called to forgive as we have been forgiven. So I'm going to run back through those real quick just to remind us. Love one another by looking outwardly, by speaking in love, by listening, by sharing your heart, by giving freely, and by showing grace. Friends, Believers, let us follow our Savior by loving one another sacrificially, in deed and in truth, as he did. Let us pray.